Many of the days I walk the halls in my apartment complex. And this morning as I was walking, I was thinking about having to get up here and, and speak on these subjects that we need to look at, image bearer. And quite frankly, a lot of times there's a little bit of hypocrisy being a pastor that gets up here and preaches. Because you realize that the very things I say, sometimes I don't always live out the very things I say. But then I realize that even though we have magnificent work, God is interested in us in process. He's not interested in us to come to some sort of spiritual point where uh, he approves of. No, it's in Christ that we have our being. And he says to me, as he says to you, just journey with me in this wonderful journey of life and face the issues that we have to face as we are called to be the people of God. And so let's just pray. Father, as we consider for a moment what it means to be your masterpiece, Father, we recognize that all we have, all we become, Everything comes from you, and it flows from you. And for that, I'm thankful, Father. And help us just to be realize who we are and just live that out in the daily arenas of our lives. Amen. I think it was important at the beginning of the year that we looked at the issue of God's love and generosity. Everything we are and everything we become, again, flows from God's love. And I want you to understand as we went through those sermon series that from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end, there's a consistent theme that God deeply loves us and desires to engage us in a relationship. After that, the next most important thing is that we recognize that we are image bearers of God. For us to understand that we're made in the image of God gives us our identity, gives us our identity and relationship to God. And there's nothing more important to every day of our lives realize who we are. After that, we're going to look at our Lenten series, which focuses on change, a Lenten journey. What does it look, transformation, look like in our lives? And so there's a pattern here that we're developing throughout this beginning of this year. I want to focus this morning on being God's masterpiece. And I want us to land here, and as we leave this place, I want you to focus on what that means as we go through the doors of this church. First of all, let's look at some pictures Pictures of, that one's always, anybody say, where's a masterpiece? It's a Mona Lisa. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, because art wasn't my greatest suit, why Mona Lisa is such an unbelievable masterpiece, but somebody in art can uh, enlighten me on that one. But she's considered a masterpiece. How the beauty of that. How about a sunset? Such beautiful sunsets that we can experience from the master's hand. Also, we have other, well, how about that? Look at the colors of that bird. Just speak about God, this unbelievable creator, what he can do. I took a picture of Hong Kong. Look at the skyline of that. I don't know, when you look at the skyline of Minneapolis, we see something as beautiful, incredibly beautiful. But the most important one is the next one. It's people. It's people. The most important masterpiece of God's divine activity in the world is to create human beings. From the beginning, we are God's masterpiece. For God said, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. The centerpiece of the creation from the beginning of time was human beings. We are the masterpiece of God's great plan. Even though we see people sometimes who who go such destructive directions and we see such evil, we still hold out that every human being has inherent worth, inherent dignity. There's still uh, vestiges of the image of God. And so as we see people, it always becomes a question of what do we see? Do we see that dignity? Do we see that masterpiece that God has created? 
The next step is so significant. They have the opportunity that they can be recreated, any human being, into the image of Christ. For Ephesians says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so that we can do things He planned for us long ago. There's nothing more important in anybody's life than to come to realize that they can be recreated in the very image of Jesus who has called us into a relationship. When we see somebody, we need to desire more than anything else that they become recreated in the image of Christ, their Savior. From there, life can unfold for us. The Colossians passage that was read this morning has a parallel passage from the the Apostle Paul where he spells out this idea, what do we mean when we talk about our oneness that we share in Christ, which is so central? We first look to Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, we see people through Jesus' eyes the best we can. And so every day of our lives, as we encounter people, the question becomes, what do you see? In the book of Galatians chapter 3, it says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all Christians. You are one in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that those other identities are washed away. And some of those identities are the areas that we struggle so immensely in life. But we, ne- we have to realize that our, we have to form our primary identity as Christians. Not about our race or economic standing or our gender. We have an identity that transcends, that rises above. And that's that we are united in Christ. And I can't tell you how that important is for the body of Christ, that we have something that we can offer to the world that's powerful, that we are united. We have the commonness that we share in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what links us together as the people of faith. And at hard times, that's hard to live out, isn't it? That's where the struggles come, is to see people that way. See people as uniquely made in the image of God with dignity and worth, and we're locked locked together. You can't push people aside because we're one in the body of Christ. Well, I want to unpack these identities that we tend to divide us this morning and really focus in on that passage. Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, we're one in Christ. So first of all, the problem with the racial divide. He talks about Jews and Gentiles. And Tom's going to come and read the wonderful story, the granddaddy of the parables, the Good Samaritan. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
I think racial divisions are the toughest divide in our country today because of the deep, painful interactions and the prejudice that we carry. It's important to hear the stories that people have, the deep stories in their lives as what's happened to them in the area of racial tension. And realize the importance of all racial groups to have a place at the table in our country. There was a deep divide in Jesus' day with the Samaritans. The Jews hated and they avoided the Samaritans at all costs. They despised them even more than the Gentiles. It's because of the history. It's because they they were religious prostitutes of the Jewish faith. And every turn of the road, the, the Samaritans were in opposition to the Jews. For we realize from their inception they were half Jew and Assyrians, the bloodthirsty Assyrians. During the time of the second exodus where they came back and started rebuilding the second temple, the opposition was who? The Samaritans. During the time of the Maccabean revolt where the Jews were revolting against the, the Greeks, a very important time in Jewish history, who was on the side of the Greeks? The Samaritans. And in Jesus' day, the Samaritans did some destructive things to the temple. They desecrated the temple, the very temple of God, as earlier they had developed a rival temple. You see, they were even more despised again than the Gentiles. And so here, the question becomes, the issue is, Jesus raises that you love the Lord your God, and you also need to realize that you love your neighbor. And the question is raised in this great story is, who is the neighbor? Who is my neighbor? It's a familiar story to us, but let's unpack it for a moment. Here was a man who was between Jerusalem and Jericho, a very, very dangerous journey. And a man was found along the side of the road that looked like he was dead, probably a Jew. He might have been dead, but he certainly looked like it. There was a priest who came, the priest that was probably two weeks up in Jerusalem doing his stint in the temple, And then he was go for two weeks down to the the oasis of Jericho where his home was. And he was eager to get home and be at home with his family. And he looks and observes this dead man, but he doesn't want to get involved. You see, if he gets involved with this man and even touches him, he could be desecrated. He had to go back to Jerusalem for a week of purification rites. And he wasn't even able to collect the food that he normally could get to feed his family. So here, as he looks at this man, he walks by. If you're the Levite, you certainly want to be over, overshadow the, the priest. So if the priest didn't stop and help him, you're surely not going to do it. How about if you come into Jericho with this, this man that only appears dead, and you bring him right in on your donkey into Jericho and embarrass the priest? You would never do that. As the listeners were listening to this story, they would, they would say, oh, we know who the hero is. Because a, a, a Jewish layperson also who served in the temple is going to be the one, the third one, that will probably minister to this guy and be the hero of the story. You see, the the Jews only cared about their own racial group, the Jews, and then they did have laws that governed the stranger as a neighbor. Who cared for him? Who cared for him? Of all people, a Samaritan. Samaritan comes with the inconvenience to minister to care for him, the risk of carrying a man into Jericho on his donkey, the risk of a Samaritan with this man that looks like he's dead, and the cost. But he cared for him. Yes, he did. They could not see the Jewish people at all, the Samaritans' value and worth to God. They wanted to avoid them. They wanted to marginalize them at all cost. Who are the racial groups? in our existence, in our life, that we tend to want to avoid. After all, the question penetrates our heart then, who is our neighbor? 
regardless of racial identity. Who is our neighbor? It's the one who's in our sphere of influence and we need to move beyond our sphere of influence as we minister to people. And the question from this story of the Samaritans and the way the Jews despise them, who do we want to avoid? Who do we want to avoid? As we unpack that passage in the book of Galatians, there's an economic divide. Slave and free. Listen to the story as Tom reads about the rich man and Jesus. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Ancient Roman society, there was a deep divide between the wealthy and the rest of the people. As we think about wealth today, we have all kinds of discussion going on about the rich versus the poor, and sometimes wealth is viewed as evil today. Everyday discussions about the unfairness or the focus of the bad behavior of those with money and power, and it's certainly true that that takes place. But it's not universal. Appreciate the words of Bill Gates as he's heard people who are going after the rich to say, wait a minute, not all of us. Bill Gates is giving millions and billions of dollars that he's disseminating among the world to all kinds of causes. But it seems in the world that we live in, there's hostilities to all economic groups. There's unbelievable greed in all quarters of society, and we're pulling apart by our economic divide. And Jesus tries to speak into the life of this rich man. Jesus never said that having riches by themselves is evil, nor did Jesus say that poverty is virtuous. Everywhere in the Bible, we see the the command to show compassion and love for the poor and needy. It's all throughout the ancient Old Testament law. We see the Apostle Paul, as he traveled, he always said, remember the poor. But what about the love for the rich? Many who are wealthy are so desperately lost like this rich man in the story. In the story, there's a phrase that just sticks out like neon lights. It says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved this man. He loved this man. He saw a man who was desperately trying to live out the law impeccably. Jesus saw his heart and realized that he was never going to be a true disciple of Jesus. If his riches did not separate him from following Jesus, he would have been a deeply committed follower. He would have a zeal to follow after God. Folks, this was the only person that Jesus encountered in the biblical text who went away sorrowful after being in the presence of God. The only instance that we find in the whole Bible, the New Testament. For this person, it was riches that kept him from wholeheartedly following Jesus. 
What is in our lives? The parable of the sower, its riches, its cares of this world, its difficulties, and we could add to the list. But the call for the people of faith is to love people regardless of their economic condition. We do not make decisions based upon our relationships or friendships that are based on a person's financial bottom line. We need to see people, all people, rich or poor, through the eyes of God as an incredible masterpiece. And the question for us to consider, even in this context of today, who do we hate? Those who have versus those who have not. Who? Who do we despise and who do we hate? The third divide is the gender divide, male and female. And Tom will read the story of the crippled woman. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your own ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Thank you for that expressive reading there, Tom. I appreciate that. In the ancient Roman society, women were treated, treated terribly. They were treated terribly. The only ones that were treated with any kind of dignity were the ones that had extreme women who had extreme wealth. In contrast, in the early experiences of the church, it was a place where women were treated with dignity. The church breathed fresh air into the hopes of women in the particular period at the particular time. At the same time, it's important to realize that the apostles were careful never to enact rapid social change in the church that would hinder the expansion of the gospel of Christ in culture. That's a very, very important statement because as we read some of these passages in Scripture that seems to be prohibitions, we say, what is going on here? Again, at the same time, the apostles were careful to not enact rapid social change in the church that would do anything to hinder the expansion of the gospel in culture. Certainly in some quarters of Jewish culture, women were forgotten, even to the exclusion of having dignity, even in the community. The history of the church has not been favorable towards women. All through much of the history of the church, women have not been valued, and it's tragic. And we see a common expression even in our own society. In our own society. We ought to applaud when we see women take on positions of significance within our society and leadership. One thing I can never understand is why, how can you pay people differently, men and women, for doing the same job? It's beyond human comprehension to me that such things happen in our society. In this story, this woman was crippled for 18 years. Satan had kept her bound, the text says. The fact that Jesus touched her tends to indicate that she had a demon possession and it was to the point that it affected her physically. 
This is one of the few times that Jesus initiates the connection. Most of the time, they approach him. She probably not considered herself even worthy of the master's attention. Jesus loved and valued her and healed this forgotten woman. The problem, of course, is that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. They had all kinds of rules and regulations, 30 or 40 regulations that fenced out the Sabbath so that nobody would violate it in the ancient world. But they missed the point. Jesus says you care more about animals than this woman who has such need. Jesus, don't you see that she has dignity and worth as a true heir of Abraham? She belongs in the family. And the religious establishment wanted to exclude her, while Jesus included her, of course, as a true heir with a place in Jewish religious community. I am so glad that the Apostle Paul clearly stated in Galatians the reality and the goal that there is no distinction of worth, value, or responsibility of men and women in Christ's church. And I'm glad to be part of a denomination that works hard to try to move towards the dignity and equality of women and tries to live out that reality because it's at the very heart of what Paul says about our oneness in Christ. And the question becomes, who do we exclude? Who do we exclude that we don't see as worthy of God's powerful love and grace? In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul brings it to the application. He says, For God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself. Reconciling is that God is about the business of working in this world through Christ to reconcile and bring all people unto himself. And he calls you and I as the people of faith to be called into this great reconciliation process of bringing together. We are not agents of divide. We're agents of bringing people together. Because we understand more than anything else of our oneness that we share in Christ, regardless of these distinctions. We find ourselves in Christ. And just think if we live that out. Live that out in our friendships. We show dignity that people we encounter are God's masterpiece and not make judgments. Oddly enough, as I often do. Just think in society if we breathe the fresh air of being a real Christian in society and see people through Jesus' eyes. Not to further divide the racial differences. Not to be involved in the economic warfare in society. But exercise what it means of genuine love. The difficult task of trying to bring people together. And it is difficult with a forgiveness of, of, that we need to express to each other and bringing people together. That's our call. And we ought to be the people more than anybody else that move that women have the, a place, a place at the table in human society. It's all about who we include. It's all about who we bring together, not being involved in the divisive divide. And the church will never be the church, folks, until we fundamentally see all people as masterpieces of God. Again, we will never be the church unless we fundamentally see all people as masterpieces of God. We also will never be the church of Jesus Christ unless we are actively engaging people to help them to understand the good news of the gospel that can give people ultimate dignity in Christ Jesus And then they can become of a community that experiences the oneness that we share powerfully in Christ. The church will never be the church unless we actively engage people to help them understand the powerful reality, the good news of the gospel that gives people ultimately ultimate dignity in Christ. We have a wonderful privilege to be the church in the world.
We're about reconciliation. We are not about divide. We're about bringing people together. We're about seeing people through God's eyes as incredible masterpieces of the living God.